It's time for Tupelo Tom and Big Lou talking. And now, here's Tupelo Tom and Big Lou. I'm Tupelo Tom. And I'm Big Lou. And, and we're, we're talking. talking. Hey, Big Lou, we are talking. It's episode three, and they said we'd never make it. <laughs> I know. We've proved all the skeptics wrong by reaching the infamous episode three. <laughs> That's right. And this episode, uh, premiering in March of 2023, we are titling Spring Fever, based on, of course, the Elvis song from the movie soundtrack, but also because it's spring and we have fever. (laughs) That's right. And I'm so ready for warmth. I'm over the cold. No more cold. Cold, go away. Yeah. And uh, we've got a lot going on. This is a a big month in in Elvis history uh, that we're going to talk about, uh, a a big album that was... uh, kind of the relaunch of Elvis's career, part two. We're going to have some reviews of some festivals that have happened in the month of February. We're going to be previewing some festivals that are coming in March, at the end of March, and uh, looking at that. And uh, a lot of other surprises. We're going to talk about some birthdays of some Elvis friends and uh, different things like that. But I think the, the one thing I think we need to address first is um, something that happened in the Elvis world uh, just after... Elvis's birthday on uh, January 12th, uh, the passing of Lisa Marie Presley. And uh, it it took everyone by shock. She had been in Memphis at Graceland on the 8th, on Sunday. Everyone saw her on the Golden Globes Tuesday night. And then Thursday, she was gone. And uh, 54 years old. And it just seems like the, um, the Presley family just has a cloud sometimes. It was... Uh remarkable that we had the opportunity to have a podcast where it just so happened uh we talked about her birthday and other other things with her and spoke very fondly of her having no idea of course what was going to happen i'm so glad it happened serendipitously i can't believe i pulled that word off but uh it is very sad the untimely passing of lisa marie i'm just so happy that she had the opportunity to see the movie, to see the story of her dad yeah. done in a way that could potentially win an Oscar. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was asked by a lot of people, my thoughts about it. And, and, uh, you know, I had interviewed her several times, spent a little bit of time with her, um, with Jerry Schilling and, and Priscilla. Uh, I remember being with her one time late one night in the lobby of the Peabody. And this was maybe about seven or eight years ago, it was before the week before she was making her debut on the Grand Ole Opry. And we were talking about it. And I said, and I just kind of said, well, I hope you have better luck at the Grand Ole Opry than your dad did. And she looked at me like, and because why, why? And I said, well, you know, and I thought, well, I've just stepped in this one. I got to keep going. I said, well, you know, your dad, Elvis didn't, the Grand Ole Opry did not like him very much. They didn't like his music and they told him to go back and, and, and drive a truck. And uh, she said, oh, well, that's, you know what? She said, now that you mentioned that, I do I do, do remember that story. And it was the next week we were listening to the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, after one of the songs, she remarked, I'm glad you like it. I didn't want to have to go drive a truck. So I don't know that she said that because of what I said to her, but I just thought it was a neat closing circle about her mentioning truck driving as a Presley on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry. And I'm so glad you got to tell the story about that she likes to see her dad's wallet first thing, just a reminder that that was her home and Elvis was her actual dad. She wasn't a fan, a, an ETA. <laughs> it was her father. And so I'm glad we got to talk about that. And so we'll, uh, I was only around her a few times and she was always incredibly nice to me. So uh, rest in peace, uh, Lisa, you will be missed. 
for her family. We send our love uh, to Priscilla and everyone. And, uh, you know, as we said in in that episode, Jeff, that it was it's very difficult. She was born into notoriety on the front page of the paper that, you know, the day she was born on February 1st, 1968. And uh, it's it's really tough to live a life like that in the spotlight. And uh, none of us none of us know the pressure. We can think we do, but we do not know the pressure. So, Lisa Marie, we will miss you, and uh, we will uh, we will carry that Presley name on uh, down generations. It's because of the fans that that will happen. So, we just wanted to be sure to uh, to mention that. And uh, and there's something else, Jeff, that's uh, that's broken in the Elvis news and over the last few weeks. And that is something, again, that I think will make quite the impression on the Elvis fan base and a lot of the new fans that are coming to this Elvis world because of the movie. Uh, I know people have said, well, you guys talk about the movie a lot. Well, I think the movie has been something that has been a new catalyst in bringing new people. And you've been seeing new faces in crowds, correct? It is remarkable. This really started last year. Uh, when we did the Myrtle Beach Elvis Festival, which we'll talk about, um, I just got back from, I asked, the, the. it was amazing, there wasn't an empty seat at the festival, and I asked how many people were attending an Elvis event for the first time, and, and Tom, it was half the room. Wow. And it wasn't a whole lot different this year. Uh, we were, uh, every show was sold out, and I asked that question once again, and it was a good 25, 30% of the room were there for the first time, and people were, continuing to tell me I've never seen this. I didn't know this existed. I'll never miss another one. Uh, it is remarkable that here we are 45 years after Elvis's untimely passing, and he is going to be the biggest star in the world once again. <laughs> it, it is, and it's it's been fascinating to see them discovering all this new stuff. Um, I know when I was hosting some events at, at birthday, we were talking about, you know, Jerry and somebody said, Jerry who? And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. You, you guys don't know. This is great to introduce all these young fans and new fans uh, to Elvis's story. And, and the, uh, the new thing that we are alluding to is the, uh, the teaser trailer that has dropped for Agent Elvis. As we record this, that is all we have seen is the uh, minute and a half, two minute teaser trailer with uh, the voice of Matthew McConaughey as Elvis, but not doing Elvis. Jeff, as a performer, I'd love to get your thoughts on the fact that Matthew McConaughey sounds exactly like Matthew McConaughey and is not doing a character voice, because I know the fans have had something to say about that as well. What are your feelings about that? I absolutely love it. And I think that Elvis would have loved this. There's, you know, Tom, you and I are very fortunate to have met a lot of people that knew Elvis very well. Uh, people that lived at Graceland, uh, people that were around him his whole life. And one common denominator you always heard about Elvis was how funny he was. Mm -hmm. And we obviously know about his uh, passion for the comics as a young man. And I think this is something, it's going to be fun. It's not intended to be an Elvis movie or an homage to Elvis's career. It's taking an element of a really cool character, meaning Elvis Presley, and what if? It's kind of like the movie uh, and the the story that uh, Chuck Barris told of being a secret agent, and I think it's going to be fun. I'm so glad that Matthew McConaughey is just using his normal voice because I'm afraid if he'd have tried to imitate Elvis, 
it would have gotten hokey and been lost on what the story really is. And that is how cool would it have been if Elvis was actually a secret agent? It's going to be fun. It's intended to be fun. And just from everything I heard about Elvis, I think he would have laughed and got a big kick out of it. And how, who doesn't want to show where they're portrayed as a secret agent? Please do that with me. I think it'd be a blast. <laughs> well, I'm brought back to his JC speech that he gave when he was named one of the 10 outstanding young men. When he said, I was, when I was a child, ladies and gentlemen, I was a dreamer. I read comic books and I was the hero of the comic book. And I saw movies and I was the hero of the movie. He finally gets to be the hero of the comic book. He's, uh, now a recruited member of a secret government spy program battling dark forces of evil, uh, he gets to be James Bond. He gets to be Matt Helm, which is movies that he loved. And I love that in the trailer, I've kind of gone through it frame by frame. I've seen glimpses of the living room with the peacock windows. I've seen a fight taking place in the jungle room. Uh, there's a shot of Elvis and Nixon together. I don't know what that's going to be about. And uh, Scatter, the monkey, will is basically a co-star in this film. And uh, I, I know the language is kind of loose, but I wonder what Elvis uh, would have done as a movie actor in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. Perhaps language would have changed in the movies that he made as society has changed and language has changed of things you can say. There's a lot in this movie that language-wise, if that's going to offend you, you probably don't want to watch it. Um, but young people who are into comic books and into animation, um, this is a weird adult swim kind of Netflix project. Uh, it's a animated feature. I think it's an animated series for adults and, uh, people with an open mind that maybe aren't Elvis fans that might find this. I, 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 I look forward to talking to someone who didn't know any of this part of Elvis and realizing that he really did want to be a, an, an agent. He did, really did want to be a, a spy, and he loved law enforcement and police. And uh, this treats it in a way that I think is uh, is going to be fun. So uh, I know we're going to have some uh, – we might have to have a point-counterpoint uh, in a future episode with someone that uh, that goes totally opposite our feelings about it. But, again, these are our feelings before we see anything other than the 90-second trailer. Exactly. And just – you know, people need to remind themselves it's fun. It's sarcasm. It's intended to be uh, cutting edge and, and it is not going to be for the, the meek. Uh, Elvis was not known for not saying the occasional word that was off color. So, so <laughs> I don't think he would have been offended by it either. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I love the, the look they gave him in, in the, uh, animation he looks cool he sounds cool it looks funny i'm just really really excited to give it a chance i hope everybody gives it a chance and if nothing else it's another way of getting elvis out there that's not sarcastic that's not uh poking fun other than maybe having some fun with and there's a difference mm. and i think there's just another way for younger people uh, adults alike to go who is this guy let me let me look more into to him and then you find out i i got a feeling we're going to find out some of the the uh animation that in compared to him in real life is going to be shockingly similar <laughs> i was uh perusing the credits that are available so far uh for the the series one of the credits i found interesting now this is an animated show but a very famous clothing designer john varvados is designing the wardrobe for Elvis in an animated series. A designer 
is designing a costume for an animated character. Wow. John Varvados. That is amazing. You know, one thing you can depend on, ladies and gentlemen, here with Tupelo Tom and Big Lou talking is we do know our clothing designer. <laughs> well, if it doesn't come to Lansky's, I don't know about it. But this is just amazing that John Varvados, there might be a, an Elvis line of John Varvados in our future. It, it, it might be happening. That'd be great. <laughs> Well, we'll be on the lookout for it, and I'm sure next time we get together to talk, uh, we will uh, have something to say about uh, Agent Elvis. The interesting thing about this is, uh, as I started thinking about it, I was actually doing an interview with uh, Priscilla when she announced this series during Elvis Week in 2019, and it was called um, Agent King at the time, and we thought it was interesting. And at the time, they didn't have a you know a voice. They didn't have anything written or anything. Uh, but it's it's taken since it was announced by Priscilla in 2019 uh, till 2023 for it to come out. And the one thing I will say, Jeff, uh, just to remind the fans, um, EPE and Priscilla do not own Elvis's name and likeness. That is owned by a company called ABG. And so this is licensed. This project of uh, Agent King is licensed through ABG. And I know Priscilla and Jerry Schilling are assisting, but they do not have editorial control. They do not have editorial final cut. That is owned by ABG, and Netflix is doing this in association with that corporation. So I just want to to put that out there. And Tom, I think we can all agree with everything that's going on with spy balloons towering over us. (laughs) We could use a little fun in our lives. Let's just have some fun with this thing and give it a chance. I'm real excited to see it. One thing I do have a prediction about. I think this time next year, if there's an Academy Award for animated performances, I believe Scatter could be up for a Best Supporting Award. I think Scatter is going to take off. Uh, I predict a Scatter stuffed animal in the gift shop soon at Graceland. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it first. (laughs) Tupelo Tom and Big Lou talking. The prediction of the stardom of Scatter. At least I know I want one. (laughs) All right. That's our thoughts on Agent Elvis. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to turn around and we're going to talk about some birthdays of some some friends of ours during the month of March. Hang in there because we're going to keep on talking. Tupelo Tom and Big Lou continuing to talk. And right now we're going to talk about birthdays in the month of March in this episode entitled Spring Fever. And Jeff, one of the first birthdays that we have to look at March 13th, and it is uh, half of one of the greatest songwriting teams in rock and roll and really in music, and that is Mike Stoller. Uh, Birthday is uh, March 13th, born in 1933, and uh, along with his partner Jerry Lieber, uh, who passed away in 2011, they have over 70 big chart hits, but the songs they have written, and I started you know how when you, you go through and you, you start making a list and you say, oh, I just want to throw a few things down. And then you realize, well, I can't leave this one out and I can't leave this one out. So, Jeff, this is what I came up with. Lieber and Stoller are responsible for songs like Hound Dog, which Big Mama Thornton, of course, covered first. Kansas City. I'm going to Kansas City. Kansas City. Here I come. Right. Yep. Young Blood. Searchin'. One of the first 45s I ever played in my life, my mother had the 45 of the coasters, Yakety Yak, Don't Talk Back, and the flip side was Zing Went the Strings of My Heart. I didn't get my record out to look this up. I just know that because I played it so many times when I was a kid. (laughs) Lieber Stoller wrote Yakety Yak, Don't Talk Back. 
Then for Elvis, Love Me, Jailhouse Rock, Loving You, Don't, King Creole. I mean, how you you can't cut the list off. It just keeps going. And one of my wife's favorite songs, I Want to Be Free, because she heard Mike Stoller telling the story about the writing of I Want to Be Free from Jailhouse Rock. Jeff, do you know the story? No, please tell us. All right. So Lieber and Stoller are under a deadline to get all these songs finished for Jailhouse Rock. And they're basically told by the screenwriters, okay, in this situation, Elvis is doing this, and you got to write a song for that. So if he's in a car looking at a sunset, you got to write a, I'm in a car looking at a sunset song, right? Well, they're in this room writing these songs, and they won't, they're just saying, you got to write these songs. And one of them is looking out the window, and they see a bird sitting on a tree. And all he can think, think about is, I wish I could be like that bird on the tree. I just want to be free. And they're like, ding, there we go. That's the song. It's written about looking out of a window at a bird. These two guys wanted to get out of that room, and they envied that bird outside on that on that limb. And that is one of the stories that, that Mike Stoller has told on stage during some interviews I've done with him over the years. I always love that story. And every time I hear that song, I think of that story. So now you're going to do it too. You know, it's funny, as a songwriter that didn't quite have the success Lieber and Stroller had, I'm always <laughs> shocked that uh, that the nature of, of the songs, how does the same mind or minds write Jailhouse Rock and then turn around and write Don't? I think about people like Stephen King, these great authors. The prolific nature of these great songwriters is astounding. And for them to have so many hit records that basically defined a genre and an era and a generation of music and for it to have such different flavors and rhythms and tempos and content is just shocking. I mean, I guess you'd have to say that uh, Lieber and Stoller, Lennon McCartney, uh, the two greatest pairs of songwriters in rock and roll history, certainly, I guess maybe uh, Elton John and Toppin. Yeah, I was going to say that. Uh, uh, the the pairings of these people, I think Lennon and McCartney are um, the outlier in this comparison in that Jer Jerry Lieber, Jerome, was the lyricist and Mike Stoller was the songwriter. Elton was the songwriter or the music, you know, the music composer. Bernie Taupin was the lyricist. Um, Burt Bacharach and Hal David uh Hal David was the lyricist and Burt Bacharach was the composer of the tune. But in the case of Lennon McCartney, it was just all over the place. They, they were just both inspired to just, they just were just writing it both and accompanying each other both. So it's interesting. It's usually one of them's a lyricist and one of them is the composer. I was in the office of my best friend, Mike Owens. I think he was at universal South at the time. And we were just, uh, had just gotten back from lunch and, uh, there in Nashville. And I remember, I believe it was Tony Brown opened the door and uh, stuck his head in and said, Mike, Jeff, here's uh, Bernie Toppin. Oh. He said, hi. And he walked out. Wow. And we were like, well, okay. There was, that was crazy. <laughs> uh, it really is fascinating. And, and, uh, and, and to think that uh, culturally Lieber and Stoller, there was nothing about them that seemed to match the music they were writing it, they did it better than anyone. You know, you, you're exactly right. They do not strike you as um, real big rockers, uh, but they uh, were, were born, you know, in New England and New York and Maryland. And 
Yeah, it it is interesting. I would love to uh, to to know more about their story and how they got into that. They didn't appear to be rock and rollers, and uh, those songs are, of course, known by by everyone. And 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 you mentioned Bernie Taupin. I just want to go back on that real quick. One of the things I have I know about Bernie Taupin, and and the beauty of Jeff of being a host on a radio show uh, that I do here in Tupelo and it doing a podcast is that everything you ever knew that was useless comes into need when you're on the radio and podcast. And so I know about Bernie Taupin. He is a huge fan of country music like Hank Williams, Ernest Tubb. He loves cowboy boots and cowboy hats, and he loves Nashville. So there you go. You were there. You saw you had ev- evidence of that. One thing, too, that, that great songwriters need is the same thing as great performers. And timing is such a huge part of that. I think about Glenn Campbell needed Jimmy Webb. Jimmy Webb needed Glenn Campbell. Uh, how great is it that Lieber and Stoller happened to have Elvis at the time that Elvis was skyrocketing? Uh, and then, of course, I would I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when Lennon met McCartney. And how incredible is it that that Bernie Taupin had Elton John and his melody and his voice? So they those powerful forces seem to find each other. Uh, Barry Gibb and everything he wrote with the Bee Gees. So mm-hmm. it is fascinating to uh, to to know how it just so happens things are out there in the air and they find each other and that gives us the perfection of some of the greatest music of all time. And and knowing a little bit about Bernie Taupin because uh, I, I always think Elton Elton gets all the the credit, but you've if you've seen any video of Elton in the studio he's always noodling around on the piano finding where these words fit and how they fit and i remember reading about bernie toppin uh, the reason he fell in love with country music is when he was a young kid he heard marty robbins song el paso and that's when he realized oh you can tell a story in a song and that's that that inspired him to do that and to, to close the circle on Marty Robbins, because I know you and I both love Marty Robbins, um, Burt Bacharach, who I am a huge fan of Burt Bacharach. I have a lot of albums of his, and I did not know this until he recently passed away into his 90s. I think he was 94. Uh, his first hit was recorded by Marty Robbins. Uh, the Story of My Life is a Burt Bacharach song, and Marty Robbins had the first hit for Burt Bacharach. That launched his career. I had no idea, and that's one of my favorite Marty Robbins songs, kind of like pretty much everything he ever sang, but what a great song that is. And so we find out a little bit ourselves, even when we do this. Uh, That's Mike Stoller's birthday on March 13th. We say happy birthday to Mike. And then on March 15th, um, what can you say about Dominic Joseph Fontana other than... um, one of the greatest rock and roll drummers in history, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, born March 15th in 1931. And you and I both were lucky enough to just sit around and try not to be total babbling idiots when we were with DJ Fontana. It is probably the coolest thing out of all this Elvis world, the people I've met, the friends I've made, the experiences I've had, to call DJ Fontana a friend is by far the coolest and most, and I'm sure my buddies around here, I go to a cigar bar every Friday. I'm sure they get sick of hearing my Elvis stories, but I would just look at DJ's hands and I would think that's the guy pounding the drum on jailhouse rock. He was so funny, such a gentleman. There's some stories I can't tell, 
but he was so um, <laughs> giving of his time. And one of the just big ego strokes I would get when I would call him, Karen would answer, and I would hear her say, hey, DJ, it's Jeff. Oh, oh, I want to talk to him. Oh, oh. Every time that mattered to me, it was just so incredible. You know, I almost killed DJ. No. And this is a true story. Uh, I was, uh, there's a tour called Elvis Lives or Elvis Birthday Tour. I don't remember what it was, but um, a bunch of the really great ETAs, uh, the beginning of the year during Elvis's birthday month, January and February tour all over the Midwest, Illinois and Chicago. And I had uh, just one pot of water. I didn't know if you'd heard. <laughs> and I came back and DJ knew I'd won it. And I, I feel somebody pinch me on the butt and say, uh, hey, can I borrow $500? And it was DJ. I thought that was pretty funny. But anyway, so I toured around with the with the whole tour and, and was took about a month off. And I was giving, we were in Louisville. I think the show was in Cincinnati. And we were staying just across the river there, so it wasn't quite to Louisville. And I was giving DJ and Karen a ride home, and I was so starstruck still. They're in the back seat, and I was in the front. And I just ran a stoplight. And there was a car coming full speed. I have no idea how it missed us. Nobody said a word. And I was just sitting there, you know, that that shock when you have when you nearly have a wreck. It would have been totally my fault. Nobody says anything. We get to the hotel, we get out. Everybody's standing there. And somebody said, Well, DJ, how you doing? He goes, Well, pretty good, I guess, other than Jeff trying to kill my butt. <laughs> That's a true, that is a true story, but he was such a great guy. You know, I was fortunate enough to go to his house. I remember he had his drums, the drum kit, the famous drum kit Mm -hmm. was upstairs and it was kind of in a loft and you could see it from downstairs. And I got some great pictures of me and DJ clowning around uh, with the drum set. But I, I told him, I said, DJ, why don't you let me take this drum set off your hands and You'd have room. You could roll around and play and have more fun. He goes, you'd do that for me. I said, sure. He goes, man, you're such a nice guy. (laughs) But I sure miss him. He was uh, just a wonderful man. And what an honor to to be able to go, you know, I was friends with DJ Fontana. That's just really great. Yeah. I, 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 uh, in 1980, um, I'm going to go back a little bit. Let's go back in history. Uh, In 1980, I was at Ole Miss and I was taking a class called uh, uh, Southern uh, History of Southern Culture. And it was all about uh, things that are Southern, you know, blues music and and writing like William Faulkner, because, you know, Ole Miss is in Oxford and that's where Faulkner lived. Anything to do with Southern culture, history, um, we, we, we studied in this class. And, and our final assignment that we knew, we knew about this assignment at the beginning of the semester, and it was to write a paper, a 10-page paper documented with sources on something Southern. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I'm 20 years old. And I read that DJ Fontana was coming to Tupelo to, to attend a festival or a convention, an autograph show. And, and I asked my teacher, Dr. Tim Ferriss, who went on to run the Smithsonian. So he kind of knew what he was talking about. Uh, he was my teacher at Ole Miss. And uh, I said, if I do a paper on Elvis, could I use somebody as a source instead of a, you know, a book or a, a, an article? And he said, Tom, if, if you have access to someone like DJ Fontana, he is your paper. Just interview him and transcribe it, and that is your paper. And I thought, oh, okay, now all I have to do is meet DJ Fontana. So I go to this convention in Tupelo, 
and I, I wait in line and I get, I'm toward the end of the line. Cause I knew I thought I'll do this last. And I said, Mr. Fontana, I probably said, hi, Mr. Fontana, I'm Tom Brown from Tubalo. And, <laughs> and I asked him if he would participate in this. And he said, you know, son, that sounds like something interesting. He says, you know, no one ever really asked. Cause I said, I want to talk to you about your career and about things, you know, that you've, you, other people you've played with. I said, I have a, a Ringo Starr album called Buku of Blues and you're back on the back cover with Ringo. I said, you know, you played drums for a Beatle who was a drummer. Like, what was that like? So the fact I think I led off with stuff about that I knew about him in this, the days before Google, um, I just knew this stuff about DJ. And he says, well, I, I'll do the interview with you, but I got a favor to ask you. And I said, anything. And he said, well, I've never been to Elvis's birthplace and I'd love to go to El to see Elvis's birthplace. And he said, can you pick me up tomorrow morning? And I got my mom's big Mercury marquee and I drove DJ to the birthplace and I have a photo of us together uh, in front of the birthplace. He was the first person I ever met in the Elvis world years before I even knew I would know anyone else in the Elvis world. And uh, as I started to get to know him, when I started hosting Elvis events, I always would introduce, I always introduce myself to people, even if I've met them, because I don't want that awkward moment of, and you are. And I would always introduce myself every time I would see DJ. And finally, after maybe the third or fourth year, he just looked at me and said, Tom, would you please stop introducing yourself to me? I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> so he, a very special guy. And there's a story I have about him at RCA Studio B, but we're going to talk about Studio B coming up a little bit. And, uh, I'm going to save that story for, for there. But uh, Karen, if you're listening to this, we would love to tell you how much we love you. And thank you for sharing DJ with us all those, all those times that, that, that he was on tour. He always took Karen with him. They were always together. And I just think that is just a wonderful thing. And uh, I miss her and I miss him. And I know you do too, Jeff. We were really lucky to be around to know that man. I absolutely adore Karen. And uh, we are very lucky. One thing. Uh, I just thought about there's, you know, there's so many stories you could, we could do a whole podcast on him. <laughs> we were, when I was at his house once, one of the things he was most proud of was a letter. And I'm going to forget some of the names that were on there. And I was, Karen and I were looking at it with DJ and it was a letter signed by several legends saying it is time to finish the job and put DJ Fontana into the rock and roll hall of fame. And it was a very heartfelt letter and it was signed by Eric Clapton, Phil wow. Collins, uh, Ringo Starr. The list goes on and on. And as DJ was showing me that, I looked over, and he had tears in his eyes. I'll never forget it because it meant so much to him that his peers thought that much of him, and deservedly so. Uh, God bless DJ. God bless Karen. And God bless David, his son, who obviously passed uh, way before uh, his time. His, his passing was very untimely. We miss him as well. That's right. And uh, I'll close, Jeff, with a story that that I remember from one of the big anniversary concerts. Uh, it was at the FedEx Forum, and uh, Jerry Schilling asked me if I would do the introduction with him for the evening of, of music. And uh, we were backstage getting ready to go out into the spotlight uh, to, to open this concert with a few remarks. And we were standing over to the side, and, and DJ was sitting in the dark over on the side of the stage behind his drums, in the dark, but we could see him because he was backlit behind the curtain, straightening his jacket up and getting his sticks ready. And, and Jerry hit me on the shoulder and said, look, look over there. DJ's in his office. That is so great. Yeah. So, wow. 
those guys, I know he called Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones a close friend. I mean, everybody, every drummer in rock and roll knew and loved DJ. So we do miss him. And uh, we remember him on his birthday on March 15th. And on March 16th, another birthday, another uh, person that worked a lot with Elvis, and that is bass singer Ray Walker from the Jordan Ayers, born March 16, 1934. What a voice that man has. I was so lucky. I got to do a show with Ronnie McDowell, and uh, DJ was playing drums. By the way, DJ at this point was in his 80s, and he was still the Tennessee Thunder Man. He could rock still. He had to have help getting up to the kit, but once he did, watch out. <laughs> Millie Kirkham was on the bill and Ray Walker, and I got to sing with all three of them. Yeah. And one of the highlights was Millie Kirkham, of course, sang uh, the ooze part on He Stopped Loving Her Today. So I got to sing that song with her singing mm-hmm. behind me as well as Ray Walker. So that was her last show, actually. Uh, but yeah, Ray Walker uh, will always talk to you and just such a friendly guy and what a legend. And uh, a man who... Uh, a, a person uh, that when you interview them on stage, you never know what is going to happen. And I was interviewing him one time about his story about how he was helping Elvis sometimes during sessions with voice lessons because Ray is a voice teacher. And Elvis was having trouble hitting some notes and, and ask Ray how to and, – and, and Ray is telling me the story of how he gave lessons to Elvis. And in the middle of it, he goes, you know what, Tom? I'm just going to give you the same lesson. Stand up. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, I have just lost control of this interview. And all that went through my head was commit, do everything he says to do, and what would Johnny do? And because, you know – you guys are Elvis tribute artists. I'm a Johnny tribute, Johnny Carson tribute artist. So I just thought, how would Johnny do this? <laughs> and there's video out there floating around of Ray Walker giving Tom Brown a voice lesson, teaching me how to hit the low notes by making the sound of regurgitation and how to hit high notes by clucking like a chicken. And uh, it it was one of the moments that I always remember in front of an audience thinking... <laughs> Thank goodness I had Johnny to inspire me because uh, it, it it was you never know with Ray Walker what's going to happen. We we love him, and every time I sing BG songs, I think of clucking like a chicken to hit those notes. <laughs> That's great. It's it's probably a voice style that Jeff. I'm sure you use that style of clucking a lot yourself. The chicken clucking, and be careful when you say that real fast, is definitely a <laughs> a method often used in Southern gospel music to get those tenors way up there, I think. There you go. It's a gospel thing. I like that. Another birthday in March on the 17th, Kurt Russell, child actor. He was in It Happened at the World's Fair and kicked Elvis in the shin. And then in the late 70s, one of the first really portrayals of Elvis in a movie, that big TV movie, Elvis, uh, where he met his future wife, Susan Hubley, who played uh, uh, Priscilla, and strangely directed by the king of horror, uh, John Carpenter. Uh, so Kurt Russell having a birthday and then then did uh, 2,000 Miles to Graceland or whatever, 3,000 Miles, however, however many miles to Graceland that movie was he did uh, uh, with wearing the jumpsuit again. And it was great because they had the scene in 3,000 Miles to Graceland where the kid who kind of looked like Kurt Russell did when he was in, when he did kick Elvis, they had him run up and kick him in the shin, another kid. A little homage to the Elvis movie. <laughs> I love that. Uh, when I was at Turner Classic Movies, uh, we were going to do a tribute to Elvis. And we usually, at the time, we would get actors who were fans of of legend actors 
to do a, a voice piece for us to tell why they, you know, really like them. We got uh, uh, Meryl Streep did a piece on Betty Davis because she loves Betty Davis. And uh, so we'd have people like that do things. Brad Pitt talking about his love of Steve McQueen. And when we got ready to do the one on Elvis, they said, who can we get? And I said, well, let's get Kurt Russell because he played him in a movie and he was in a movie with him. And so we sent the offer and the weeks passed and the, the answer came back and the answer was no. And uh, they said, who else? And I said, well, Eddie Murphy, because Eddie Murphy's a big fan of Elvis. And the answer came back from Eddie Murphy's camp. No, doesn't have time. And I said, well, you know, I don't, Elvis is not worth, I don't want a secondary actor or somebody. If we can't get one of those two guys, I don't want to do it. And about a month later, my phone rang. And I answered the phone and uh, he said, Tom, this, uh, this is Kurt Russell in California. How you doing? <laughs> and I was like, okay, that is his voice. That's Kurt Russell. And he said, hey, listen, I just saw this letter, this offer letter from you guys uh, about uh, doing this thing, you know, giving my memories of Elvis. And, and he said, I'd love to do this. I love that man. He said, have you found someone? And I said, no, Kurt, if we didn't, we didn't get you, we weren't going to have anybody. And, uh, and, and he did that for us. Uh, he, he said, I didn't, my, my, my people, my team, uh, my, my dream one day is to have a team refusing things for me, but his team had decided he shouldn't do that. And he didn't know about it. He saw the offer and said, no, 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 I'm doing this. Wow. The thing I learned at Turner Classic Movies, and this is a lesson about anything. If you find someone's passion, there is no amount of money that it will take to get them to do it. TCM didn't have the big money to do something, to get someone to do something. They did it because they loved it. And the money they got was, was next to nothing. Uh, we got Burt Reynolds to do a tribute to, uh, uh, to Spencer Tracy, who was his favorite actor. There's no amount of money you can pay someone like that for their, their time. But Elvis was a love of Kurt Russell's and he was going to do it. He didn't care that the money, you know, I think it even went to charity because he said, I'm doing this because I love Elvis. So happy birthday, Kurt Russell on the 17th. And he's also a heck of a baseball player. You know, he, uh, I think his dad owned a baseball team. There's a great documentary of it. Yeah. Uh, but Kurt's such an underrated actor. Of course he was, I thought he was fantastic as Elvis, you know, and I remember uh, different people that have played Elvis throughout the years. I'm so glad we got Austin Butler. Finally, one thing I would comment about Kurt is he was such a good looking guy, just a soft, good looking guy mm -hmm. that that's what you had to have to capture the essence of Elvis. And of course, who can forget his role as Wyatt Earp and Tombstone? I oh. think that's one of every guy on the planet loves that movie, but he was <laughs> such a great actor and uh, did, did a great job as Elvis and uh, happy birthday, Kurt. He's one guy I would love to meet. I wish, we, I wish they could, uh, have a conversations with him in Memphis one of these days. That would be amazing. Well, you know, I've got his number. He called me. I mean, let me see if it's still in service. I'll give him a call back. Born in 1951. Happy birthday, March 17th to Kurt Russell. And Jeff, coming up on March 20th, we've, we, we had a birthday in February of, of Burton Reynolds. And now we've got a birthday on March 20th of another one of our icons, if you will. Mr. Jerry Reed. That's right. Snowman. Jerry Reed Hubbard, his uh, his full name. I, I've got a, an eight by ten autographed um, to May Axton, who was a friend of mine when I first moved to Nashville. She really helped me out, and uh, before I moved to Nashville, she gave me advice. And uh, at her estate sale, I bought a picture that was signed to her by Jerry Reed and Burt Reynolds. Um, oh. You know, we've talked about on the podcast the further we we go here, watching Smoking the Bandit, just you and I. 
and commenting on it. And that'd be a special, uh, that you can download. Uh, we're still looking at the, the specifics of that, but I would love to do that. But Jerry Reed, of course, his first movie is you and I's favorite, one of our favorite all-time movies. It was uh, WW and the Dixie Dance Kings oh, yeah. introducing Jerry Reed. That's right. And he is such a, his, his guitar playing talent is unmatched. There's a great album he and Chet Atkins did together. He was a great songwriter. And uh, of course he wrote uh Several hits for Elvis. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that he the the song that opens the uh, the the uh, sixty eight comeback the uh, Guitar Man. Well, it doesn't open it, but it's it's in it's in that opening segment. Uh, Guitar Man. He wrote U.S. Mail. I said all that to say all this. I've been watching the way you've been watching my miss. That is a Jerry <laughs> Reed lyric right there. Uh, a thing called love from the gospel album. Yes, I get to. We'll talk. I'll actually have a, a story about Joe Moscato in a minute. But uh, Joe Moscato played piano. He, of course, was uh, was in the Imperials, and uh, you and I were both very fortunate to uh, be really close friends with him as well. And maybe one of these days we'll tell the outlandish story of the last time we were all together. That'll be a special episode. But uh, oh my goodness! But anyway, that will be a special uh, Agent Elvis uh, type episode, if you understand what I mean. That's that's right. It will be. Uh, that's a fantastic story. But Joe and I would have lunch uh, quite often. But before he played piano on that gospel record where Elvis cut a thing called love. And before we would leave to go to lunch, I'd have to sing, reach out to Jesus. And I'd have to sing thing mm-hmm. called love. And Joe would play piano. And I, one time I kind of lifted my phone up and I took a picture of Joe playing. And it's an incredible picture. And I'm thinking to myself, I cannot believe that my life took me to a place where I'm singing with Joe Muscao and he's playing piano that played on the Elvis record that I grew up listening to so much, the album, uh, and nominated for a Grammy, that album. And uh, it was just really special. But that's a Jerry Reed song, one of my favorites. And he... uh, had so many, you know, Amos Moses, Lord Mr. Ford. I mean, just hit after hit after hit. And what a talent, what a character, and what an actor. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, one of those people that in his very first movie totally and completely knew what he was doing. And uh, Bert so impressed by uh, young Jerry Reed and W.W. that he gets him to star in Gator, a movie that Bert is directing. And uh, still a very new actor at the time. And Jerry just hits it out of the park in Gator and went on to do some great movies, some fun movies. And, of course, Snowman in Smokey and the Bandit. And uh, if you want to know what talent is, folks, it's when someone is able to do something and it looks like they're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. That's called talent. Yep. And that would be Jerry Reed as an actor, as a guitar player. Um, had such identifiable licks. And the legendary story when they were cutting, uh, when Elvis was cutting uh, Guitar Man and U.S. Mail, those studio guys, they couldn't handle those licks and they had to call and get Jerry and he was out on a lake fishing and he came in and did the session and they said that uh, Jerry told the story about how he was looking at Elvis. He just said, you know, I just got to tell you, Elvis, I'm not inclined that way. But if I was, you're beautiful. <laughs> Didn't he say, you know, I kinda, I'd kiss you, Elvis. <laughs> he uh, now now, Tom, you probably know the story more specific than I do that they wanted publishing for one of the songs, but they had already cut it. Mm -hmm. And Jerry wasn't going to give up his publishing. I don't know if it was U.S. Mail or Guitar Man 
or which song it was. And Jerry said, no, I'm, I'm keeping the publishing. And uh, they weren't about to tell Elvis no. So we got lucky that we got uh, one of those recordings. I don't remember which one. Somebody more knowledgeable than I would, would know that. And there's some great outtakes also from those sessions where you hear Jerry uh, picking picking those songs and, and kind of messing up and then starting over again. And you can hear him laugh. You can hear him talk. And, and Jerry's right there with Elvis. That would have been... I'd love to have heard of more from those two two guys working together. I think they'd have made some good music together. One great thing about Jerry Reed that gets overlooked as an actor, like you said, he was so natural. We think of him as this comedic actor and how funny he was in Smoking the Bandit and WW, but he could also play the dark character like in Gator so well. And there's a movie, it is a comedy, but but Jerry Reed plays a hitman. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Survivor or Survivors. I can't remember. Oh, but yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It has Robin Williams in it and Walter Matthau. And Jerry Reed is a <laughs> is a hitman. And he he they they catch him robbing something. But there's a great scene where he's with his wife and he's packing and uh, he's gonna go after Robin Williams because he's afraid they're gonna, you know, rat him out. And so his wife starts crying and she says, Do you love her? And he looks at her and he says, honey, do you remember Jimmy Hoffa? She said, yeah. He goes, well, I'm the man that killed Jimmy Hoffa. He said, so when I'm out there, honey, I'm not committing adultery. I'm committing murder. <laughs> it was so great. But he is just a fantastic actor, performer, guitar player, singer, writer. And uh, we're lucky to have uh, been around during his heyday for sure. That's that's right. And uh, he has a great uh, cameo. In Stroker Ace, when uh, Stroker is embarrassing himself shooting a commercial, Jerry just kind of shows up. And in looking at that scene, you kind of get the feeling that I don't think Bert knew it was going to happen. So I challenge you to go out there and find that scene from Stroker Ace as well. All right, that's just a few of the birthdays that we were talking about. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to go on a date with Elvis. And uh, it's an interesting month and an amazing month in the uh, life of Elvis Presley. We're going to take a look at March of 1960. A Date with Elvis is next. Tupelo Tom and Big Lou back, and Elvis is back. We wanted to talk about A Date with Elvis. It's a segment of the show that we like to tell you things that are happening in the history of Elvis in a particular month. But this month, I'd like to just dedicate this episode of Spring Fever, of our March episode 2023, to really what happened in uh, March of 1960. And that is... Elvis is back, uh, an, an album that um, that was very, very important in relaunching uh, Elvis's career and proving that he was not a three or four year flash in the pan gone to Germany for two years and comes back to no career, which could have easily happened. Uh, we look back on the story now and we tell the story and in, in a sentence, we say Elvis was in Germany for two years and then he came back to continued success. But all during that two years of 58 and 59, they did not know if when he got back, he was going to be able to attain those heights that he had had in the 50s. Very smartly, he had recorded a storehouse of some songs. Uh, Steve Scholes from RCA Records and Colonel Parker backlogged some songs. They even had a recording session when Elvis was in uniform at the brand new RCA Studio B. And they released records throughout 1958 and 59, which hit the charts and kept Elvis on the charts, listened to by people. So when he came back in March of 1960, they had to quickly get him in the recording studio. And Jeff, I'm going to take you through a quick timeline of exactly what happened. Elvis gets back 
uh, to the United States March 2nd, 1960. He's discharged March 5th of 1960. He goes to Graceland, spends a little time. There's that famous photo and video of him uh, in, in Vernon's office uh, doing the interview, sitting at, uh, behind Vernon's desk when they say, you know, what'd you miss about Memphis? Everything. That happened right around that early March date. And then March 20th, he gets himself to Nashville and has a session on March 20th at RCA Studio B, and he cuts six songs between 8 o'clock at night and 7 a.m., and that becomes about half the songs that are on Elvis Is Back. But here's one of the, the things about that session that I think is interesting. The very first song he cuts when he's back from Germany is Make Me Know It. That was not going to be the single, but it was important to Elvis to start with that because it was written by Otis Blackwell, and Otis Blackwell had written Don't Be Cruel and All Shook Up. And Otis Blackwell was kind of a good luck charm, if you will, to, to Elvis, and so he wanted to start with that song. But one of the things that happened on the recording of Elvis's Back, if you go back and listen to all the music recorded prior to that, it was recorded at Sun, it was recorded at Radio Recorders Studio in Hollywood, it was recorded on Hollywood sound stages, and there was that one session at the end of uh, 50, or early 58 where he went to RCA Studio B, but Elvis's Back had a new sound for Elvis, not just in the types of music he was performing, but the sound itself. And Jeff, being the singer-songwriter that you are, talk to us a little bit about how important a studio is and how important RCA Studio is, not just to Elvis, but to so many other artists. It is very important to have the right producer, the right studio, the right sound, the right comfort level. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have recorded at Studio B. I've recorded at Jack Clement's studio, uh, several studios there in Nashville. And there's something about Studio B that it's a magic that you just can't explain. One of the engineers, Bill Porter, knew there were problems in certain spots of Studio B where the sound wasn't that good. So he bought this material and made what he called pyramids. They became the Porter Pyramids. And it would help the sound in the studio. Then he went through and marked X's on the floor where the studio had its best audio sound for vocals. That's how detailed they went into Studio B. I, I highly encourage, we'll talk more about the Nashville Elvis Festival coming up. If you get a chance, tour Studio B. It is absolutely worth it. You can feel the energy there. And we'll talk more about Elvis's back, but, but one of the Studio B stories, Elvis also cut a lot of Christmas albums there. And he would decorate the studio like Christmas and cut in the summertime. And Joe Muscale told me a story about when they were cutting the Christmas album one time, Elvis would bring gifts, put up a big tree, everything. And Joe had his eye on the biggest box in the room, and that's what he wanted. <laughs> and everybody else is opening their little boxes and stuff. And Elvis said, Joe, uh, which, one, which one do you want? And he goes, I want that one right there, the big one. <laughs> so he said, looking back on it, Elvis was kind of laughing. He didn't know why. So they gave it to him. Everybody started opening up their presents. And if you had a little one, it might be a car key and the car would be outside. Yeah, yeah. Or it might be a diamond ring. And Joe opened the biggest box in the studio and it was a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so he just walked out. He told, he told the, the janitor guy, he said, Merry Christmas. You can keep that damn thing. And he walked out. And I just wonder if somewhere at a closet in Studio B, that vacuum just hiding in a corner somewhere in the history of it, isn't even known. But, but Studio B is very special. 
And there were so many people that recorded there. Waylon Jennings, Eddie Arnold, of course, Chet Atkins, Mickey Gilly, David Bowie recorded there. Yeah, yeah. The Everly Brothers, Willie Nelson, Roy Orbison, list goes on and on. And thank God it became a, a, uh, a place that they cannot tear down. Nashville tends to tear everything down, but now it's a historical landmark and they can't touch it. So we'll have it forever because it is truly music. Magic was made there and uh, studio B again, tour it is, it is worth it. It's just remarkable. That studio was almost in constant use. I mean, there, there were so many sessions there around the clock and I, somewhere along the line in the past, I had access to a, a list of songs that were recorded at studio B and it was like all the sessions. And I looked up my birthday, uh, January 5th, 1960. I said, I wonder if on that Tuesday, there was a song recorded there recorded on my birthday. Uh, the day I was born, Hank Lachlan had a session and he cut, please help me. I'm fallen. Oh, wow. That is incredible. You know, you know, Tom, I almost forgot. I told you this story. Studio B, I was at a place called Sammy B's and I had a few adult beverages. <laughs> and at the time I had my golf clubs in my car because I played quite a bit of golf back then. And for some reason it was at night and I thought it was a good idea. There's the alley behind Studio B. And you always know you're cool when you can park in the alley area. You know, you're, you're, you're in, you know. And for some reason, I thought it was a good idea to take out my driver and blister a golf ball down the alleyway. I'm not sure why I thought that was smart to do at the time, but I did. <laughs> I think the adult beverages had something to do with that. <laughs> yeah. The ball had Budweiser on it, the logo. And I drilled that thing right down the middle and got in my car and left. Two years later, I'm doing a demo session at Studio B. And uh, we took a break. And I said, I just want to walk out the back door because that's, you know, the way, the cool uh, place to go in and out of the studio. I walked out the back door and I looked across the alley and there sat that Budweiser golf ball that I'd hit two years earlier down that alley. So that's my little Studio B haunted story there. And that is a haunting story. That's a haunted story, Jeff. That's that's just, that's <laughs> actually kind of scary. It's Seriously. Just as a disclaimer to all you kids listening, please do not hit your golf balls down alleyways in Nashville. Thank you. <laughs> coming from you. Uh, so that place is very special. We did a shoot uh, when I worked at Turner Classic Movies, and we were talking earlier about DJ. I had an idea. We were doing a bunch of stuff about Elvis um, in the early 2000s, and I had become friends with George Klein, the DJ from Memphis that was friends with Elvis, and and he was voicing some stuff for us. And I said, you know, I want to do interviews with, uh, with DJ and with Scotty, but I want you to do them. And uh, where do you think we could do them? And he said, well, they both live in Nashville. I can go to Nashville. Let's do them in Nashville. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can do them at RCA studio B. Why not? Let's get these guys back in the studio. We did it. Scotty was only going to do it because it was George. He said he didn't have time to break in a new interviewer. So he just wanted, he knew George would know what he was talking about. And so we got to spend the day in RCA studio B setting up the cameras and, and getting ready. And then the next day we did the interview well, the guy that was the house manager or the studio manager, uh, I, I was showing a lot of interest, obviously. So he was taking me around and showing me things. Jeff, have you ever gone outside of RCA Studio B and climbed the metal ladder on the side of the building and gone into the echo chamber above the studio? Well, I have not done that. And just for the record, anytime the word climb and ladders involved, <laughs> I try to avoid that at all costs. <laughs> 
Well, I got to go up this ladder and go into this baffled room, really. And they built the echo chamber above the, the studio. And that really is what, especially on these early uh, Elvis's back recordings, gave it such a different and magical sound uh, to, to Elvis. So that that is right up. So next time you're at RCA Studio B, look around the side, you'll see that metal ladder. And uh, that up above the uh, the studio, boy, you know we really are. I, we we tell these stories, and we don't tell them to brag. We tell them because they just happened. But boy, looking back on it, we've been really lucky and didn't even realize it at the time. All because of one guy. It's incredible, isn't it, Elvis yeah. Presley? So Elvis is in the studio. They have this session on March twentieth. Now remember, he just got back to the United States on like March second, and got to and was discharged on March fifth. By the twentieth, he's in session. Uh, doing one session from uh, seven or eight o'clock at night all the way till seven the next morning, they cut uh, six songs, two of which are going to be the first single. Now, they were unsure about Elvis coming into the studio. Everybody was rather nervous when this session began. Bill Porter was there, like you said, the engineer. Colonel was there. All the executives from RCA are there. Does Elvis still have it? Well, he cut that Otis Blackwell song, Make Me Know It First, and... uh, then he did another song that they were not expecting him to do at that time, Soldier Boy, which he loved, was a song that had been from another artist. And then he finally got down to cutting the song that was going to be the single. About 12.30 in the morning, he started on Stuck on You, and the flip side was Fame and Fortune. But they knew Elvis, and Colonel knew Elvis, and they wanted to get the single out as fast as possible. So they printed up the 45 sleeve that the 45 slipped into and in normal circumstances it would have had a picture of Elvis on it and it would have said stuck on you Elvis is back you know the first single well they didn't really know if he would do that or he might want to find another song to do as his first single so they printed up 45 sleeves that had the big cutout hole in it and around the edges of the paper it said you know Elvis is back his first single and you just looked at the hole to see what the name of the song was that's why since that session was March 20th, within a week or so, eight days, that single is in record stores. Wow. Because they just printed it like that. And they wanted to get the album as fast as possible into the stores. The album, Elvis is Back, if you see an original pressing of it, the album, Elvis is Back, it has a picture of him in an army trench coat on the front, in front of that blue curtain. It says Elvis is Back. On the back, it's got a full photo of Elvis in his army uniform. You open the album up. It's a gatefold, what they call a gatefold. It opens up. There are 15 photographs of Elvis during his time in the Army, and nowhere on the album itself is the name of the songs. That was put on as a sticker once they had the sessions done. That entire album recorded in two sessions on March 20th and a day in April, I mean April 6th, and that album then came out within a week after that. So... Because of Colonel's thinking about how do we get it out there fast, we'll slap a sticker on it with the name. That's what those album covers were printed before Elvis even walked into the studio. What a change in his voice. He sounded so incredible, and his voice was so pure. And and that really was something that was thought out by him when he was in the Army. He was listening to music by different kinds of artists. He was listening to Mario Lanza opera. He was listening to Dean Martin. He was listening to crooners. And uh, he was seeing what was happening with a lot of the rock and roll artists at the time. And their careers were kind of getting a little shaky there. And so when he comes back, he has this session. He has the first session uh, for the album 
But then he gets on a train in Memphis and goes down to Miami to shoot the Sinatra Timex special, where he does, you know, Fame and Fortune and Stuck on You, his new single and B-side. But that's when he really showed, you know, that's when the hair was really high. He still had that army cut, but the hair was really high. He lost the sideburns. But being there with Sinatra was a calculated move to show that Elvis is back and he's not the raunchy boy you might have thought he was in the 50s. Look, he's been to the army. He's an adult now. And it was a new kind of Elvis. It was kind of a relaunch. And that new sound of RCA was really something that that helped that that presentation of the new image. And, you know, that's that's not a bad A, uh, B side on a 45, Stuck on You and Fame and Fortune. Wow. Yeah. Two incredible songs. We were talking about DJ a little earlier. He told me a great story about the Sinatra special. And that's one thing, Tom, you and I have talked about, how lucky we are to know these people and to, to become friends with them. They'll use phrases that, that, you know, he doesn't say, well, when I was with Elvis, he'd go, I remember when we did the Sinatra thing. Yeah. And he always wanted to meet, I asked him if he had any favorite drummers and he said, Buddy Rich, you know, it was pretty much every drummer's favorite drummer. Of course, Buddy was playing with Sinatra and he was there. And he said, Buddy's just standing there by himself. We're in Miami. And he, he said he heard that Buddy can be a little uh, tough, shall we say. Crotchety? Crotchety would be right. And he goes, but man, I got to at least try to say hi. This is my chance. So he <laughs> walked over and he, Buddy won't even look at him. He's sitting there, and finally DJ said, man, it sure is hot, isn't it? And Buddy said, you don't see me wearing a damn coat, do you? And then just walked <laughs> off. That was his Buddy Rich moment. He loved it. See, even the legends are fans. <laughs> right. Yeah, he goes, I finally had my Buddy Rich story. I didn't want anything else other than that to happen. It was perfect. Well, from what I've heard about Buddy Rich, he got off pretty easy there. Uh, what's interesting is when Elvis goes down to Miami to do the Sinatra special, it was taped. It was shot, but it didn't air until May. So by this time, the, the, the single's on the air, on the radio, it's in the stores. The album Elvis is Back is in the stores. So that was something that was very calculated to have that TV special on in, in early May, Elvis with uh, Nancy Sinatra and Joey Bishop and Sammy Davis Jr. were on that show as well. What I find interesting, that second session, so after they go to Miami to shoot the uh, Sinatra special that won't air until May, they go back to Nashville and they have the second session for Elvis's back. Well, around four o'clock in the morning, they run out of songs. They've done everything they need to and they still need some more songs. So they sit around and they start thinking up songs. What can we record? And this is when the notorious song that was selected by Colonel Parker, everybody says, you know, Colonel Parker recommended Are You Lonesome Tonight because it was his wife's favorite song, and, and would you do that? And he did it, but he did it when he was actually looking for music. It wasn't like he bumped a song to record it. So at around 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, they record Such a Night, which was a song that was covered by another artist previously, and that's when Elvis does Are You Lonesome Tonight, when they were looking for songs. Uh, so it was a part of that session. And then they did Girl Next Door, Wanna Walk In, which has got a great Boots Randolph sax part on it. I Will Be Home Again. You can hear Charlie Hodge singing harmony with Elvis on that cut. And then finally, they do a Reconsider Baby. And if you've heard the unedited Reconsider Baby, there's about a four-minute sax solo in there. And as a sax player myself... Boots Randolph is, you know, there's Johnny Carson, then there's Boots Randolph, and he's right up there with people I admire and uh, a great opportunity to, to hear Boots in the studio. And then after only two sessions, Elvis's back is in the stores within a week. Incredible. And what an album. My gosh, what an album. Can you imagine? Think about that today. How in the world 
you're gone two years. There's no Facebook. There's no Twitter. There's no Instagram. And yet they managed to keep Elvis's name in the spotlight. Then he comes back and he doesn't record songs like Jailhouse Rock and all that stuff. He goes a totally different direction. Still has some of that great rock and roll edge stuff. Goes a totally different direction. And he's just as big as he ever was. It's just remarkable. Yeah. And then, of course, heads to Hollywood to cut uh, to shoot uh, the movie that was perfect when you've been away in the Army for two years, G.I. Blues, right? He does G.I. Blues in a uniform. It's out by the end of the year that he gets back in 1960. It's a huge hit. Then Elvis wants to do some serious roles, and he does them in, uh, in, in Wild in the Country and Flaming Star, and those movies don't do as well as G.I. Blues did. And then they do Blue Hawaii, and then it was a giant hit, and that kind of started the cookie-cutter movies that came out because they were making money. But after G.I. Blues in 1960, Elvis tried some serious roles in Flaming Star and Wild in the Country, and they weren't as successful as G.I. Blues. So he had his chance, and that's when the the die was cast with uh, with Blue Hawaii. It's interesting to see the whole timeline of, of what happened in the career. And then to, to go from, you know, the, the biggest star in history in the 50s, goes to the Army, comes back, cuts this incredible album, his movie career, like you said, it, it became became a little cookie cutter doing films, but they were successful. Yes. So, of course, his career ended right after that, correct? I mean, th- there was nothing else. <laughs> yeah. It is amazing the, the the trajectory that Elvis' career, the journey it took. He constantly kept reinventing himself, you know, every couple of years. And that's just what makes him the greatest entertainer of all time. And it's something that on this podcast we're trying to do. We, we don't want to be a, a, a Wikipedia or a list of things, but I think sometimes in going back, especially for the, the newer fan, to see what was going on in the career uh, and, and to see how decisions were made. Because, again, you can look back and, and know if something was going to be successful or not. But at the time, they're just giving it a shot and seeing if it works. And it certainly for Elvis's back, it worked. And, uh, uh, you know, he relaunched himself several times. That was the first time. And then he did it again in 68. So uh, I'm, he had a relaunch left in, uh, I'm sure, in 1977, if he'd been around long enough for that to happen. Uh, so that's a date with Elvis. This this year of 1960, I just thought was very important in March to uh, to talk about that. And uh, there's a lot of things going on, especially we were talking about G.I. Blues and Wild in the Country and Elvis movies. And, and Jeff, there's a little thing called the Academy Awards. And those nominations came out. And a little motion picture about Elvis Presley has eight Academy Award nominations. Wow. And deservedly so. And I still think they missed out on... on- on Tom Hanks's uh, not getting nominated. I know that that's had some controversy. People thought he overplayed it. I don't think there's any way to overplay Colonel Parker. And, and I thought the makeup, especially the more you watch it, you forget, Oh yeah, that's Tom Hanks. That's not the Colonel. And the Colonel had such a mysterious origin. Yeah. I thought Hanks really brought that to the screen, but yeah, I'm just so happy for Austin, for Baz, uh, for us as fans uh, to have that movie, be as successful as it was and deservedly so get as many nominations. And I was so happy for Austin. There's some great roles out there, some great actors, but to be able to, to do what Austin did where he captured the essence and the voice of all the different generations of Elvis 
and really nail it. Yeah. And to go from the shy kid at the Louisiana Hayride to the brilliant singer at the end of his run in Unchained Melody and nail everything in between is truly remarkable. And, you know, it's funny. I don't get what the big hubbub about his voice is. And people, he's still talking like Elvis. I can just tell you as an ETA, when I used to be an Elvis tribute artist, when you're really involved with that and you really work on your accent and you live and breathe this character. Now imagine doing it at the level Austin did. Imagine doing that for years, making a movie, the gravity of Elvis. No, it's not going to just go away. It will eventually. Well, what I was also thinking was, how do you know what Austin sounds like anyway? I, I, I'd really, except for the role he played of Tex in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I never heard him speak as himself ever before that. So he could have been talking like himself that just sounded kind of like Elvis. So I, it's not like he was Scottish and he was talking like Elvis. He was just, you know, that's something <laughs> that fascinates me all the time when I'm watching a series and I'm watching, a, have you seen the Pennyworth series, Jeff, on HBO about Alfred Pennyworth? Oh, yes. The guy that pretty much everybody in the show, uh, except Martha Wayne, is British. Yes. But in the series, the, the actor that plays Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne is, you know, American and he's speaking in the movie. But then you watch these little interviews with him and uh, this guy's British and he sounds nothing like Bruce Wayne. And I'm like, wow, I mean, to be able to, to be able to, to turn it on and off like that is absolutely amazing. And uh, actors will tell you that one of the hardest things to do is to have an American accent because it's very regional. And the most difficult thing for an actor to do is to have a Southern accent because there's Florida, there's Georgia, there's Mississippi, there's Louisiana, there's Texas. Everybody kind of has their own little bit of the you know the 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 accent and the drawl and the slang and uh i think he pulled it off brilliantly if you give the movie a chance it it is absolutely a fascinating film and you like you said you have you end up forgetting that these are actors and uh, i will say one thing you were talking about tom hanks he has two more academy awards than anyone i know so i'm going to go with his opinion on how to play colonel parker cuz he seems to know maybe perhaps a little bit more about acting than you or I or anyone I know. Uh, and the other part that I think is sad about the Academy Awards is that that Baz only is participating as a producer on the film if he wins Best Picture. Baz is the, the incredible genius that cast Austin, that put this entire movie together. It is his style that is absolutely suited to this film. Go back and watch Moulin Rouge or any of his other films. Um, they're, they're, uh, the Great Gatsby with uh, DiCaprio, he is the only director that, that who could have brought that that style, just the the look and the feel to this movie. I just I'm I'm heartbroken that the the man behind everything uh, was not nominated. Uh, it was nominated in eight categories: Best Picture, Best Actor for Austin, Cinematography, Mandy. I think it's very important to know these names too. By the way, Jeff. Cinematography, Mandy Walker, production design, Catherine Martin, who is Baz Luhrmann's wife, and Karen Murphy, costume design, Catherine Martin, makeup and hairstyle, Mark Coulier, Jason Baird, and Aldo Signoretti, editing, Matt Villa, and Jonathan Redman, and sound Academy Award, Wayne Pashley, Andy Nelson, Michael Keller, and get this, 
David Lee. Wow. Is nominated for an Academy Award on sound for Elvis. Congratulations, David. I mean, he worked between being in Birmingham and doing all the shows that he does as an ETA and an ultimate champion to be able to go to Australia and work on, I'm sorry, what? I'm Oh, it's, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Lisa's telling me it's a different David Lee. I'm so, I'm so, so sorry. Uh, uh, maybe Alex, our producer can cut that out. He was named after our David Lee. That's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. And of course, let's don't forget B&K made the suits. That's right. B&K makes all the suits. A bunch of the guys on that. I'm excited. You know, everybody was saying when it when it came out that the eight nominations, eight was Elvis's favorite number because it was the symbol for infinity. And uh, I was talking with Jerry Schilling about it. And, and Jerry said, you know, there, there's many reasons that that we want this movie to do well at the Academy Awards. But one of them is Elvis deserves his Oscar. Yes. Don't you think? Yes. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. Whether it's for best picture or sound or best actor, Elvis Presley deserves an Oscar. Absolutely. And you know, Elvis's life and Elvis's personality, his career, the impact to this day that he still has on people is bigger than life. And so Baz made the picture. It had to be bigger than life. It had to be almost like a Marvel movie. But then he had the magic, incredible ability to make some of the scenes so down to earth and subtle and real when his mom died. All these different things yeah. that the movie has, yes, the bigger than life, the musical quality. Then it turns right around. It has the very real uh, hard aspects of Elvis's life, the tragedy of of, you know, as you see the the downward spiral a little bit in Vegas, uh, being held prisoner, not being able to, to travel overseas like he wanted to. So I just felt like <clears throat> it was subtle and over the top, and I don't know how you pulled that off. Congratulations, Baz, and everybody involved in the making of the film, and thank you, thank you, thank you for doing it. I've literally watched it, uh, there's no telling me how many hundreds of times I've watched it, and I love it every time. I will challenge you. And I also want to say, you know, welcome to the podcast if you're listening to this because of that movie. Uh, that's how important the movie has been. It's been uh, inspiring people to discover the life of Elvis and maybe find some of these Elvis festivals around the country and to find this podcast. Um, I, I will say that uh, the movie is amazing in Baz's skill at peppering things throughout the film. Um, and when I was at Turner Classic Movies, I worked a lot with Tony Curtis and Tony said, when you're watching a movie and you're and, and you want to see it again for the second or third or fourth time, start watching something else in the shot. Don't watch the lead actor. Watch the people in the background. Look at the sets. What's on the wall? What kind of clothes are they wearing? Do they have makeup on their collar? Look at all these other things. And my story about this movie is the first time I saw it, you're kind of just overwhelmed. It's kind of like getting hit by a wave. You know, what do you remember? Well, I was standing and then I was underwater. Uh, you know, I don't remember anything else. Right. So, so the first time you see the movie, you're just kind of hit by the wave. It was only on maybe the second or th I know by the third time I was noticing that Elvis's grandmother, Dodger, who throws the football in the scene with the, you know, the cat eye glasses on and she throws the football in the front yard. I thought that was her first appearance in the film, but she had been quietly in the background in almost every family scene going back to Lauderdale Courts in Memphis in the movie. So just little things like that. Um, a great place to look for Easter eggs is in Colonel Parker's office. Look up on the wall. Look at the posters that are there. Look at the, the, the things that are on the table. All of these things based on 
real things that Colonel Parker had. And when you remember the fact that not a frame of that movie was shot outside of Australia, they built Beale Street and the surrounding area and everything else was computer generated around it. And I also think the film, I think the part I like the most is when they're outside, when they're outside, young Elvis is outside in Tupelo running uh, with the young Sam Bell and they're discovering, you know, the, 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 the gospel music in the tent and the, the jute music in the, in the club there, you know, and, and it's just, he's torn between the two and he's running on that little thin board between heaven and hell. And it's just dreamlike. The the scene, the, the surrounding land is dreamlike. Off in the distance is the dome of the um, city hall of Tupelo that they put in the proper place among the trees. And the dreamlike quality in Louisiana when, when Hank Snow's son drives up playing the, the Elvis song on the radio and Colonel hears it. And that scene is dreamlike. All the exterior scenes just have a dreamlike quality. Even Graceland is dreamlike. That's all the artistry of Baz Luhrmann. So if we've gone on too long about Baz Luhrmann, it's because it's so important. And again, a perfect marriage of a filmmaker uh, with with a subject. And uh, we we wish it good luck. And uh, Jeff, I say that probably after the Academy Awards happen, what do you say you and I do a special small edition update on the result of the Academy Awards and uh, and see if uh, we're correct in any of our thoughts. Uh, I, I think um, a sweep of eight Academy Awards, and if I'm wrong, I'll be wrong. But I'm going to go. I'm going to go eight and zero oh for the for the movie. That'll be my prediction. Let's do that. That'd be something great to talk about. You got it. And with that in mind, of 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 looking at the Academy Awards that are at this time coming up, um, let's look back. Uh, take a quick break and come back and tell us, Jeff, what happened. In, uh, in, in, in some of the festivals that you have been attending over the last few weeks, uh, especially Myrtle Beach. And we've got a review of that and of the Louisiana Elvis Fest coming up because Tupelo, Tom and Big Lou are not done talking. Tupelo, Tom and Big Lou talking. And one of the things we love to do toward the end of the episode is to talk about the Elvis Festival world, where there are Elvis tribute artists coming to a town near you, uh, and and it's happening all over the really all over the country. And uh, we're going to look back right now on a couple of festivals that have happened uh, in the last month or so. And Jeff, you were you were at uh, the Myrtle Beach, so you got to tell me this has been the second year of the Myrtle Beach Festival. What happened? Well, I didn't think we could top the first year. Uh, this festival, of course, is produced by our producer, Alex Mitchell, along with Cody Downath with ETA Festivals. And last year, like I said, was really a turning point where every seat was taken by new people. They all came back and brought their friends. Every show was sold out. The talent was amazing. Uh, you had young guys like Max Lee James, Braxton Sykes. You had some of the guys that have been doing this. Robert Washington, who's been an Elvis tribute artist for 30 six years jesse aaron 26 years of course i emceed it saying a little bit of course alex performed cody dale nath travis powell michael chambliss we talked about samantha chambliss she did Marilyn, and and once again was so hilarious with the great line uh about uh, is that your wife or are you on a business trip? And she just <laughs> did an amazing job. Of course, uh, the fever band was fantastic as always. We had a great after party. And of course, a guy that I had never met and he's been in our business, a legend, in our business, uh, literally played at legends forever. 
uh, has been doing this a long time, Leo Days. And I'd always heard about him and finally got a chance to meet him. Great guy, does a fantastic tribute to Elvis. So he just had top-notch entertainment. And not only was the talent incredible, but we all just get along so well. And we have so much fun. I wish they had a, a camera on us backstage because that's just as crazy. Michael Culifer was fantastic as always. So we just had a great time. The audience was, I, I cannot believe they were, they were even better than they were last year. Uh, so many people had seen the movie and wanted to know what this was about. The energy, the afternoon shows, Tom, were, were rock concerts. It was just insane. And they were engaged. I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of one little bit I did as the MC. Of course, we all know about the uh, Chinese spy balloon that got shot down in Myrtle Beach. And it was pretty close to where we were having the festival. And I think it was the second day I walked out with a very large off-white helium balloon. <laughs> and uh, I just simply said, like I've been trying to tell you guys, fake news, I found another one. <laughs> Little did we know there'd be four more shot down over the next few days. But uh, anyway, it was just great. And it's so encouraging. You know, I, I'm not sure. I think uh, pass holders have already sign up for next year. It's going to be a sellout again. We're going to a bigger venue. It's just hard to believe. You think, well, every festival we have, well, this is the best festival we've had. Can't get any better. Then we have another one. God, this was the best festival we've ever had. Something different happens. There's always some cool memory. Um, and I noticed uh, I was able to talk to a lot of people and hang out with them. And I kept hearing the same thing. Man, I needed this. Man, I needed this. And so to be able to bring that to people, another thing, Tom, that struck me as crazy, especially during Travis Powell's show, he did Pokes Out Annie. Now, we've heard that song a million times. We've seen Elvis do it a million times. We've seen a bunch of ETAs do it a million times. And yet Travis came out there and the place went berserk like they had never heard the song before. And I swear, I think it's just the energy of Elvis coming through the guys and us just trying to give as much of it as we can to the audience. And there was one moment where we all took the stage and we did yesterday in Hey Jude. The whole audience stood up and pulled out their cell phones and put their lights on. And we all just sang Hey Jude together. And it was emotional. And everybody was on the stage together. Uh, so there were just a whole lot of fantastic memories. And folks, believe me, you want to come to these festivals. If you've never been to one, I assure you, you will have an incredible time. It's a lot of camaraderie with the guys and the fan base is just a big a part of it. They are part of the show just as much as we are. So it was fantastic, and I can't wait till next year. And then, of course, uh, you know this because you were, you were there with me, Tom. Uh, we'll talk about the Louisiana Elvis Festival, which I produced with Cody Downath. With that in mind, let's take a break, and we'll be back to talking in just a second. Tupelo Tom and Big Lou now talking about a festival that happened in Louisiana, wisely called the Louisiana Elvis Festival, produced by Cody Danath and Big Lou. Congratulations on a successful festival, Lou. This festival, the, the theater was amazing. The auditorium is just beautiful. The audience, again, a third, if not more, of the audience were first-timers. Packed houses. The energy that is coming from the audience is is unbelievable. And, Tom, it's funny. I, I talked about this a little bit with, with some other festivals. The electricity of Elvis, it's almost like still going through all of us to the audience. It, it's really miraculous. And what I was excited about 
Tom, this is the first festival that you've hosted where this kind of shift happened, and I couldn't wait for you to see it and get your reactions on what you thought. I, I was amazed, uh, even at the hotel, talking to people that I had never seen, and they had, they had Elvis shirts on, and, and everybody was there, and it was all ages. And then when I went out on stage, I was asking about that thing, uh, you know, who's here for the first time, and it was a good 60%. 65, 70% of the audience. I mean, I knew a lot of faces down toward the front, but there were a whole lot of people. And what's really interesting about that is it reminded me of what Elvis used to say, or at least what I've read that Elvis said, which was, we got to bring it every night because there's somebody out there that's never seen us before. And that's one of the things that I think is so wonderful about what you guys are doing with the, the festivals that you're doing and what we you know hope to do in Nashville all those kind of festivals that are done by producers who are spreading the gospel, who are showing audiences and talking about songs and movies. And, you know, I, I hesitate to say teaching, but it's informing people in the audience and doing it in a way that is not, yeah, 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 I already know it for the super fans, but, oh yeah, I'd forgotten that. Oh, Tom just reminded me, I forgot that. I didn't know that. I, I, and people in the audience going, oh, I didn't know he had gone to the army for two years, but had a delayed induction because he had to go to New Orleans to shoot King Creole. Just little things like that, that I try to work into my intros that just give an, a, another layer of things. One of the things I learned in working at Turner Classic Movies is these movies didn't exist in a vacuum. They were a product of their times. And so what else was going on around that time in that career in the world, in the United States, in show business. And so that's what I think is so interesting about what we do. And, and congratulations to you and Coat, too, because it's the themes of the shows that is where I start with. And you guys come up with a different way to spin things and, ooh, let's put these songs together. Let's put these two artists together. And just an amazing experience. And one of the highlights for me was the 68 Comeback Special, where you guys... Coat and Dean pretty much recreated almost every musical moment from from that TV special and a TV special that is very um, familiar to only a viewer of the Elvis movie with Austin Butler directed by Baz. That's a big centerpiece of that movie. So to do that on stage in front of them gives them a little taste of black leather, white if I can dream, gospel medley, 68 comeback special. So congratulations on that. That was just an amazing show. I was watching that show. Well, thank you, Tom. And it was really cool too, because we even went so far as to recreate the big boss man moment. And I was, of course, the big boss man. <laughs> and when I said into the microphone, ain't no room around here for a guitar player, Sonny, you could hear the audience like this anticipated shock and applause, and they didn't even know it was going to happen yet. And then I walked out, and there was this roar of, oh, my God, we're seeing this moment again on a stage. It was so fun. And, you know, it's funny. We know about Elvis. We know about his career. He gave us so much material that you can take that material, whether it's different films, the 68, Pearl Harbor, Aloha, that's the way it is. There's different versions of his 70s concerts. There's different versions of his Vegas performances. And we just try to take that, like you said, and mix different acts together and do different things and find that energy and just, just a little bit of a fresh way to tell the story. So for the people that come to all our events, 
they always tell us, I don't know how you keep coming up with different ideas to tell essentially the same story. And then the newcomers, everything is new. And of course, as a performer, when you get the electricity from the audience that you get, it is so, I was under the weathers and, and, and um, a little bit, but I was able to get my set across because the audience was so fun and went along the ride with me. But the performers really brought everything they had. And to see them walk off the stage, sweating with this exhilaration of, man, what a crowd. Yeah. Man, what a band. Fever was the best I'd ever heard them. And Tom, I'm going to brag about you. Uh, you didn't know I was going to do this. But I said this in my post. I MC a lot. When you're unable to make the event, I'll take over. And I have fun and I joke around like we've talked about. We're two different kinds of MCs. You're Johnny Carson and I'm basically Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> but when you get someone like you that has the knowledge you have, the experience you have, you have the audience in the palm of your hand and you're the best in this business. And the guys, it's an honor for us. I'm not just saying that because you're one of my best friends. I mean it. Literally, Louisiana was the pinnacle of performers the band, the MC, the shows, the audience, the the venue. Keith Miner, who owns Shock and All Productions, did our production. We were at a Kiss concert, man. I mean, it was amazing. And and the biggest thing I took from Louisiana, it is clear. Here we are in this beautiful venue, packed house, young audience, middle aged audience, older audience, experienced audience. Excuse me. Yeah. Incredible performers, young and guys have been doing it for a while. UMCing, Cody and I producing and writing shows. Elvis would have been as big a star, if not bigger today, as he would have when he came out in the 50s. It was an amazing weekend. Thank thank you for your your comment about me. I appreciate that. It's it's a lot of fun for me to to do that. When you walk out and get to, you know, I'm not a singer, but I walk out and get to sing a song coming out. A little bit for me, but a little bit for everybody to be able to make sure the microphones are all turned on and there's no feedback on stage and the band's all ready to go. And I'm kind of the canary in the coal mine uh, that goes out on stage to do it. But it was it was a fun weekend for me. And there's just a moment I wanted to, to just talk about for just a second, because it happened. And as when, after, right after it happened, I, I, I said, this is one of those 10 second miracles that happened that you should, you should look for every day, something that happens that's just magic. Um, I went out to do Bill's intro and it was going to be a quick turnaround. I was going to do Bill's intro from the side of the stage. And then I was, and there was a side, this theater was incredible. There were two side stages that you could go out on, even with the curtains closed in the center stage. So they had the curtains closed for Bill's 2001. And I went out on the side and I did Bill's intro and I walked off the stage and I walked back around to go out on the stage and I go out with Bill's guitar. As I walk off of the stage, standing right next to the stage, I walk around the corner, David Allen is standing there holding the guitar out. I never stopped walking. I picked the guitar up and as I walked out, the curtain was opening right next to me and Bill was walking out on the left. All the it, This is the amazing thing about it. I've never spoken about this uh, to anyone. But every time I've ever been a Charlie Hodge to anybody, to Bill or Dean or David Lee or any or Coat, it's always they go out to the right. They, no, they go to the left. They go to the right. They go to the left. And then they back up to me to put the guitar on them. Never been spoken. That's just what they do, just like Elvis did. 
So the, then they do CC Rider and, and, and or Burn in Love or uh, I Got a Woman, Amen. Bill takes the guitar off, hands it to me, or in David Lee's matter, throws it at me. And I walk and turned and Bill gave it to me. I walked to the side of the stage. David stuck his hand out. I handed him the guitar and I turned back around and just kept right on singing Charlie Hodge. That's that 10 second. It was total and complete teamwork oh, man. to make that show. And shout out to David Allen, because the guy is fantastic as a stage manager. Yep. He knows all the guys that, you know, he knows the band, he knows the songs, he knows the music. And it's just, it's just one of those things. The audience will never see that, but it's, it's that feeling of somebody told me one time, it's like the reason people play golf is for that feeling you get when you get that one good shot and you're like, Oh, that was a great shot. And then, you know, maybe for the next three months, you're terrible, but it's that one shot that you live for and then you get it again. And you, that's enough to keep you going. So that moment with David Allen, with that guitar exchange, that was like, yeah, that's showbiz right there. I, I told David afterward, I said, it's like we were in a Broadway play and we had done that a thousand times. Well, it's, it's great too about the Bill Cherry show because I happened to be backstage with Bill and we were talking and, and, uh, he said, man, you know, what's it like getting on the stage? I said, well, put your hand on my shoulder. I'll walk you out there. And for a moment, it was 1975, and I'm walking Elvis to the stage. And as I walk toward the curtain and you hear, you know, the vamp, you know, and you're hearing the drums and everything, the electricity just starts grabbing you. It's like Thor and Ragnarok. You know, all the electricity just around the eyes and the fingers. And I stepped out, and people saw just enough of me to where I – Bill went by me and the roar yeah. we were at an Elvis concert. And again, to reiterate to people that, that may think they're not Elvis, we know we're not Elvis. Uh, believe me, nobody's more aware of us not being Elvis than Bill Cherry and the rest of us. But we get to pretend we get to just channel it, just like an actor, just like Austin got to do in the movie and talk about things. The audience doesn't see uh, Tom especially with our group and the guys we work with, it's very important to Cody and I, and I know Alex is a producer and we are a family and that, that, that gets thrown around a lot, but you see it backstage. You could put a camera backstage and be just as entertained and to be standing back there with Dean and Bill and Ben and Cody and we are and Alex and we are laughing and we're cutting up. We take pride in making the experience as smooth as we can with hundreds of people right? Coming in with tickets and packages and seating. And every time Jeannie comes in with these notes, here's what we can do better. Here's what we can do different. And everybody pays attention because it matters. And I'm so proud every festival we have, how much better that gets, how much smoother it gets. So Tom, I'll just say in conclusion, thank you for being there. I'm so glad you got to see it. I felt like a, a just a proud brother watching you see this and now you get a little uh, insight on what to look forward to as we come up to more festivals coming up this year thank you to the guys thank you to the audience all the front of house people david allen everybody the band and and jeff i want to say a special thanks to the uh the coughlin sanders uh performing arts center yes because the facility is fantastic and i got to to, to meet some of the people kendall and and dj and roy all the staff of, of the, they were going above and beyond because I got this little sticky thing I wanted to do with a TV remote. And I said, I need a TV remote. And one of the guys said, Oh, hang on. I got one. I go get one for you. Things like that. I got to do a, a little Steve Bender moment in setting the stage for, um, for Dean for the 68 comeback special. And I said, Oh, I wish I had a headset, like a big clunky headset with a 
you know, the microphone thing. And he goes, oh, I got one. Hang on, let me go get it. That's the kind of stuff from the staff of the Coughlin Saunders Center that you're, you're like, thank you for going above and beyond because this is his, that's their house. And they let us come in and do that. So we appreciate all that they did. Kendall, DJ, Roy, and everybody else on the staff there. Thank you. We'll we'll be back next year. We look forward to it. Uh, thank you to the city of Alexandria. They were amazing. Talk about that one last thing. When uh, One great thing about our entertainers, they think about how can I make this better? How can I make it cooler? And I remember Ben Thompson came in to do a movie set and he came in as, as Danny, the waiter from King Creole. <laughs> And Deb Myers found him a, a <laughs> what he called a tray, and he came walking in through the audience serving chips to people. It was so brilliant and funny. And thank you, Tom. Thank you to to everyone involved. The Louisiana, the Louisiana Elvis Festival, licensed by Elvis Presley Enterprises, massive success. Can't wait till the next time. And and one of the great things about attending uh, this festival and, and most of them is you get the opportunity at a lot of them to go ahead and buy your passes for next year before they go on sale to the public. And we made that announcement. And I know a lot of people went to the lobby after the shows to, to go ahead and get everything bought for next year. Cause we are going to be back at the Coughlin Saunders center. We're going to be downtown at the holiday Inn and the hotel right across the street, the uh, Bentley hotel. And Jeff, we're going to have an after party next year. We are going to have an after party. And I tell you, Tom, I, I know I speak for you when I say this, how lucky were the people that got to stand in line and get a photo op with me and you. Oh, I mean, the line was out the door. Yeah. People were losing their minds, young and old, beautiful people. And I, now, and, and I just want to thank, uh, Brandon Bennett, Alex Mitchell, um, and Ben Thompson for standing next to us to make sure that all of our needs were met during that photo shoot. Well, Jeff, a lot of people want their picture with Hawkeye and black widow. They do. <laughs> fans. ATA Festivals is bringing you 10 amazing Elvis festivals throughout the United States in 2023 that are fully licensed and endorsed by Elvis Presley Enterprises. Come see world-class Elvis tribute artists celebrate the legacy of the King of Rock and Roll in multiple production shows over the course of each festival. To find out where you can see us next, visit us online at atafestivals.com. Well, Tom, you have an exciting event coming up. I'm so fortunate to be a part of it. And you're producing it with Brian Mays. Why don't you tell us about it? That's right. It's the uh, the 2023 edition of the Nashville Elvis Festival happening at the factory at Franklin. It's going to be March 30th through April 2nd. And uh, it's going to be at a new venue within the factory. If you were there last year, we were in a, a smaller theater. This time we're in a beautiful facility called Liberty Hall, kind of down at the end. And the, the the cool part about this festival is it's it's at the factory. We have three shows a day starting on, on, on Friday, March 31st, but you can, between shows, just hang out within the shopping. It's kind of like a big mall, but it's in an old factory. That's why it's called a factory. And they've got all kinds of cool restaurants and stores. There's a record store. You can buy vinyl. You can see Elvis and then buy Elvis vinyl when you're there. There's so many cool things happening. We've got some fantastic headliners that are going to be there. Bill Cherry, Ben Thompson will be there. Ted Torres is our opening night doing the 68 comeback special, including the in the round part. How cool is that going to be? Cody Danath is going to be there. Alex Mitchell, who is not only producing this podcast, 
We're bringing him to Nashville, the headline, too. Michael Cullifer will be there. Michael Chamless, who is last year's Elvis Festival champion, will have his headlining show on finals night on Saturday. Uh, you're going to be there as the host of our late night after parties at the hotel. Uh, Cliff Wright, my good buddy, who's leading the band, the uh, Infinity Tribute Band, Cliff Wright is going to be doing his tribute uh, the Johnny and June tribute on uh, Sunday night with the uh, opening for Bill Cherry. And, and Jeff, you know, one of the things I love, we have 16 contestants. And uh, to say they're from around the world, uh, th- these guys are coming in to perform and to, uh, to try to win the contest, to be representative of, of Nashville in uh, Memphis in August during the Ultimate Championship. We have contestants from the United States, but we also have contestants from Brazil, Canada, Australia, Great Britain, and Japan. That's a testimony to the life and music of Elvis Presley. It is universal and it is timeless. Now, these gentlemen will be on stage performing and you think, well, how do you judge? You know, I mean, well, there are five categories that we look for, but I'll tell you, it's so important to have judges that know what they're looking at. And let me tell you who our judges are. Scott Williams is going to be there. He is the former marketing and vice president VP of Elvis Presley Enterprises. He's one of the ones that worked in creating the Ultimate Elvis Festival, which happened for the first time in 2007. Scott's going to be a judge. Christy Emmons-Jones is going to be there. She's grown up in the Elvis world because her mom is Dixie Locke, who was Elvis's first girlfriend, childhood girlfriend, childhood love, and her mom Dixie and Priscilla are best friends. And so Christy Emmons-Jones is going to be there. I'm so excited. And we have uh, an actress that is starring in a new Amazon Prime series, The Consultant. She's an actress. She's been in all kinds of things. Sloane Avery. But she, as a performer, has grown up as a fan of Elvis Presley. I always love when an actor is a judge in one of these festivals because they're looking at things like stagecraft and movement that the two of us just don't even understand. Then we have Joey Sulapak, who is the longtime host of the Ultimate Festival for the last 15 years or so. He's going to be one of the judges. And then member of the Memphis Mafia, Sam Thompson, will be there. Not only as a judge, but he's also going to be around on Saturday afternoon during the Elvis Story performance Uh, And we're going to interview him during that performance. Go take a look at our schedule at NashvilleElvisFestival.com. Like I said, we have opening night on Thursday, uh, the 30th, and then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There are three shows a day all the way through Sunday night, including Sunday morning gospel. And we're so excited. And uh, again, it's NashvilleElvisFestival.com at the Franklin in uh, Nashville, in Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. So we want to see everybody there. Please come join us. We're going to have a fun time. And then we rest on Monday, and then we all get in our cars, and we head to Georgia, to Helen, the home of Jeff Lewis and Friends. And Jeff, that's when you take it away. It is exciting. This is our first licensed event that we've done in Helen. I've had the festival now. This will be our 10th year. I am just so happy for it to be a licensed event, as is Nashville, as was Louisiana, and as was Myrtle Beach, all licensed through Elvis Presley Enterprises. And this is kind of the concept is that it's a cruise on land. So everything's included there. And it's really special in the sense that because we're all staying in the same lodge right there together, and we get more time together. It's a little more laid back. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, I call it going to the family lake house with everybody once a year except this time we're doing it in the spring and in the fall. We have some incredible talent. We have the incredible ultimate winner, Bill Cherry. And of course, uh, he's been at every Jeff Lewis 
and Friends event, and that, of course, is Dean Z. We have David Lee, all the way from England, Ben Thompson, uh, Cody Dayonath, my little brother there, Michael Chambliss, our producer, Alex Mitchell, Michael Colifer, Travis Powell. And I'm so honored, Tom, that you're going to be emceeing it. When we really started putting this together, the group that uh, I have that's kind of my planning team, the the family, it's me and, of course, Jeannie and her mom, Carolyn, who sadly is only with us in spirit now, her sister, Susan, and Brooke. We have a, a group we call the Gamma Ray Division because I'm a big Hulk fan. And I remember we were kind of retooling the event after our second one. And I said, guys, I know that this is Jeff Lewis and Friends. So usually you host an event you're named after. I said, I want to get the best. Would you guys have a problem if I reached out to Tom Brown and they, Tom, to be honest, they said this a little too quick. They go, yes, please. <laughs> so I don't know if I should be heard about that, but we got the best in the business with Tom Brown there. And um, Cliff Wright's going to be there as a headliner. Samantha Chambliss is going to be doing her incredible tribute to Marilyn and just, she's so much fun. Austin Irby, who's been with us for so many years, David Allen, Jacob Roman, my brother, Timmy Henry, him and Dean Z both have been with me since day one. And of course the fever band, a special young man who I cannot describe how talented this guy is. You used to be able to say, man, for a kid his age, he's so talented. You can't say that anymore. You just have to say, this guy is unbelievably talented as a musician, a performer. He's been on the Ellen DeGeneres show, Little Big Shots, Finley Watkins. I think Finley's about 7'4 now, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> uh, and also, I'm really excited about this. I spent some time with this guy in Las Vegas, and uh, he won the ultimate two years ago. If you have not been around this guy, he is not only a great performer, he's starred on Broadway. He's an incredible singer. He is so much fun, and I'm so excited to uh, premiere him, really, at our festivals. He'll be, this will be his first uh, festival like this to do. Uh, Mr. Pat Dunn. And he is so much fun. If you've ever seen Pat when he's not in his Elvis garb, he has extremely long, curly red hair. And you cannot tell that's the same guy you just saw on t stage. And he has so many funny stories after he won the ultimate. Some people were complaining and he was on the elevator with him <laughs> and they had no idea it was him. And they're going, I can't believe Pat Dunn won. I can't believe. And Pat just chimed right in. I know, man, he's horrible. I can't believe he won. <laughs> and that's just the kind of humor he has. So we're really excited about it. You can visit Jeff Lewis and And this is our spring Elvis festival, April 5th through the 9th. And I assure you folks sign up. You'll have the time of your life. Uh, everything's right there in beautiful Helen, Georgia, where they shot, of course, some of Smokey and the Bandit, including the famous bridge scene. Only take my hat off for of one thing. Uh, we'll, when, when we do the Smokey and the Bandit episode, we'll reenact the scene where Buford T. Justice gets his uh, car door knocked off by the semi. That's a <laughs> classic scene, but that was all filmed there. They actually stayed at Unicoi Lodge where the event is happening. It's all inclusive. We sell packages. So Come see us. You'll you'll have the time of your of your life. I promise you. And if you're lucky, you'll safely see some bears. That's right. Always be aware of your surroundings, not just when you're in the showrooms around the performers, but as well as when you're outside walking amongst that wildlife as well. Always be on the lookout. Be aware of your surroundings. And just to tell you real quick about it, Tom. Too Wednesday night we have the headliner show where all the guys will do a song or two, and then we'll cap it off with Bill Cherry that night. Then Thursday afternoon we'll have performances 
in the courtyard there, weather permitting, uh, from about one to five. Then you have dinner at the lodge and we have headliner shows that night. Every night we have a theme night and everybody dresses up. People really go all out. Uh, same thing Friday shows during the day, uh, headliner shows that night. And then Saturday shows during the day and a headliner show that night and Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we have really the cornerstone of how this festival was created, mm-hmm. how I'm able to be a part of Elvis Presley Enterprises during Elvis week. And that is our jam sessions, which is the after parties. And that's where all the guys get up and uh, let her hair down a little bit. Those of us that have it or those of them that have it, but we, it's just an opportunity to be ourselves cut up and have a little fun late night. So please join us. Jeff Lewis and friends spring Elvis festival. You can go Jeff Lewis and April 5th through the 9th and beautiful Helen, Georgia. It's a fun time, Jeff. And uh, everybody, like you said, the the theme nights, um, you know, the people that make their living dressing in jumpsuits and paying their tribute to Elvis, they are scary good when it comes to coming up with other costumes to wear. Um, it, and, and I always uh, am amazed at the creativity of, uh, of the people. I generally just stick to any character that is gray haired. Uh, so I will either do my tribute to Michael Douglas or Steve Martin. That's pretty much what I stick with. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, Jeff, we've taken a look back at Elvis history. We've talked about some Elvis movies. Uh, we are kind of, uh, at the end of this talking, don't you think? I, I mean, do you feel like do you feel like that we've covered as much as we need to cover in this episode? I think we're ready to hand this ball of yarn to Alex Mitchell to untangle and put together a great show for us again. All right. So if you're listening to us, that happened. Thank you, Alex. Our producer, Alex Mitchell. All right. I'm Tupelo Tom. And I'm Big Lou. And, and we're, we're done talking. talking.